Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We have temporarily suspended our in-person service and will be broadcasting live via our Facebook page, Beacon Church, and on our website, beacon.church forward slash live on Sundays at 1030 a.m. until further notice. Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization, and a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to connect with you soon. So when is enough enough? How do we know when we've absolutely had it and there's just no more that we're going to be able to take? For our time together today, I want to do something a little bit different. I mostly just want to tell you a story. It's not my story, although it might be my story. Uh, It's not your story, but it might be your story. It's the story of Elijah. Elijah is one of the most famous prophets in the Old Testament, a man of great renown. And he lived at a very difficult time in the nation of Israel's history. There had been a civil war previous to his life, and the nation had been split into two, and the northern part of the country kept the name Israel, and the southern part would be known as Judah after that. And Elijah lived in the northern country. And the king, when Elijah was first becoming a prophet, was a man named Ahab, not the one who hunted whales. This is the king of Israel named Ahab, and he married a woman named Jezebel. Now, you may not have heard of Ahab, but I'm guessing you've heard of Jezebel, because to this day, the word Jezebel is a synonym for evil. She was not a good person. And this all started because Ahab decided to marry a woman who is from outside the country of Israel. And this is not really a racial thing. In fact, there were interracial marriages already happening in that time in history. This is a religious thing, because Jezebel was from the nation of Moab. And Moab was known for the worship of false gods. In fact, Ahab and his father and Jezebel are mentioned in a famous artifact. It's called the the Moabite stone. And this artifact is actually a remnant of the people of Moab, not of Israel. But it talks about how Israel and Moab interacted together, especially during this period, because that's where Jezebel was from. And as a part of the worship and the people in Moab, they worshipped a number of pagan false gods. Two of them principally, one called Baal, or Baal, depending on where you're from. Baal was a prophet, uh, a god, not a prophet, who was supposed to control the weather. He was supposed to control rain and lightning. And Moabites also worshipped Asherah, a goddess who was supposed to control fertility. And so Jezebel brought all of those beliefs with her into the nation of Israel and actually used her position, used her authority to press those religious, you know, false religions into the nation of Israel. So it was a very, very dark time. And suddenly, with no warning, with no biography, we meet this man, Elijah, in this verse, 1 Kings 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, let's stop there. This has already said a lot. Now, you would think with a man like Elijah, we'd get some sort of backstory, we'd get the history, we'd find out where he's from, it, nothing. This is all the introduction that we get. But there's some important information already in the first two lines. First of all, his name, Elijah, 
The ending here, A-H, that is paying homage. It's honoring the God Yahweh, our God. His Old Testament name was Yahweh. So whenever you see a name in the Old Testament that ends in ah, you know that is a person who followed Yahweh, at least according to whoever named them. And so this is a big deal. Elijah, the one who follows Yahweh. This is called a theophoric name. And these names still exist to this day, and we do it in different ways. You know, in some cultures, you might meet a man named Jesus, and clearly that would be a Christian culture who was saying, we want to follow Jesus in this house. In Greek, the name Jesus is Joshua. So if your name is Joshua, or if you know someone named Joshua, they're also named after Jesus. Or you might know someone named Christian or Christopher. These are all theophoric names carrying the, the name of Christ. And it usually matches your culture. I would venture to guess you probably have not met very many Jewish men named Christian in your life. Right? Because those don't really line up. And this is what's happening here. Elijah, follower of Yahweh, it says right in his name, who's from the local area. What does he say to the king? He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve. Again, he's separating himself from these pagan gods of Jezebel. He says, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. This is a huge statement from Elijah. First of all, he's obviously announcing drought and famine. Just terrible news. No one would ever want to hear this. He's announcing a difficult time is about to happen in this country. He's also announcing that his God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, is actually the one who controls the world, not Baal. Because remember, Jezebel and everyone like her believed that Baal could make it rain any time that he wanted. Elijah said, there is no God but the God of Israel. He is the only one who's going to make it rain. So, Elijah just picked a fight with the king and his wife. Probably not a good plan, right? So you know what? I'm going to pick a fight with the most powerful person in my country. This is what he did. So what did God tell Elijah to do? He said, okay, great job. Now uh, I need you to flee. <laughs> so Elijah went and he hid. In fact, he hid for three years. And the text tells us that he was largely homeless. First, he lived by a brook, or you could think of it as a van down by the river. I mean, he was pretty much homeless. And birds would bring him food twice a day, miraculously. Without those birds, he would not have been able to eat. He would not have survived. From there, of course, the river dried up because of the drought that Elijah spoke into existence through God's equipping. So then Elijah went, and he lived with a widow in a town called Zarephath. This also doesn't make a lot of sense because Elijah was poor, the widow was poor, bringing them together wasn't going to help anything. So God did something supernatural there as well. The widow had a son, the three of them lived together, and God gave the widow two jars, one jar of oil, one jar of flour. He said, these jars will never run dry. And for quite some time, probably a year or two, Elijah, the widow, and the son, they ate from these two jars that never ran dry. So God was miraculously providing for Elijah, but I think we could admit, this is, this is stressful, is it not? I mean, to know every single day when you wake up, you know what, today God is supposed to bring us food, let's see if he does. And I know that we're all like super spiritual, and we'd be like, no, I would have so much confidence in God that this isn't something I would even worry about. I'm not convinced. I think this would be a very stressful way to live, subsistence living through divine intervention. This would not be easy. To make matters worse, while Elijah lived with the widow and her son, the son died. And the widow said to Elijah, I thought you were a holy man. 
If you're a holy man, how does my son die while you live here in my house? The only thing this widow had was this son. And once she finally got rid of this house guest, she was going to be completely alone and have nothing. So Elijah said, wait, 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 wait. He prayed for this boy and he came back to life. An incredible three years for Elijah. Very stressful, but he kept seeing God provide in all these difficult, difficult situations. So then three years pass, and God tells Elijah, okay, it's time for you to go have another meeting with the king. So Elijah goes back, and Elijah comes across a man on the way to the palace named Obadiah. Obadiah was the palace administrator. But you catch that. The end of his name is Ah, Obadiah Ah. He was an observant Jewish man following the one true God, but working in the palace of the king. Elijah and Obadiah seem to know each other. By the way, this Obadiah is probably the same one who wrote the little tiny Old Testament book called Obadiah. The Bible is actually silent on the issue of whether or not these are the same Obadiahs or not, but Jewish tradition has always held that it's the same man. In fact, that's probably why he gets mentioned by name. So Elijah comes up to Obadiah and he says, I want to see the king. In fact, he says it very strictly, go tell your master, Elijah is here. And if you read the text, Obadiah says to him, uh, this is not a good idea. Because first of all, Elijah, they've been looking for you everywhere for three years. They've been killing all the prophets of God. In fact, Obadiah says, I personally have saved 100 prophets. I have them in caves, 50 in each cave, and I feed them. And I think he's trying to imply to Elijah, like, listen, you, you want to go see the king? I have a cave for you. This would be a better plan. Elijah says, no, no, no. I need to see the king. Obadiah restates his case again. He says, if I bring you to the king, the king is going to know that I knew where you were. And he's going to kill one or both of us. This is not a good plan. Elijah says, I don't care. I need to see the king. So he has a meeting with the king. Now, after three years, you would think Elijah would learn how to make nice with the king just a little bit. Let's see how he did. Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? What does Elijah say? He says, I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's command and have followed the Baals. In fact, now he sets up a challenge. So, this is an interesting approach to take with the king who's been hunting you for three years. Walk into his palace, into his pad, and say, you, king, have been causing all of the problems. I've never been the king. I would love to give it a shot. I'm not going to lie. But I would imagine if you were the king, people don't talk to you like this very often. They probably sugarcoat everything. You probably surround yourself with advisors who constantly echo your own thoughts and your own opinions. It would be shocking to have a poor prophet walk in who smells like he's been homeless for three years and tell you, the king, you've been causing all the problems. Well, that's exactly what he did. And then Elijah lays out this challenge. Summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. Bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Now, if you're familiar with this account, you've heard this before. If not, I'm going to try to summarize it for you. This is a long story, and we're only partway through. Elijah sets up a showdown on Mount Carmel between himself as the only prophet of Yahweh and 950 false prophets, 450 of Baal, 400 of Asherah. And he says to them, here's what we're going to do. We're going to each prepare a sacrifice according to our tradition. 
We're going to set up our altars, our meat, our stones, however we do it. But we're not going to bring any flame. This is like some sort of Boy Scout challenge. You know, you get dropped in the woods and you don't get to bring a lighter. Okay, he says, we're not going to bring any flame. Your God has to supply the fire. I mean, you worship Baal, right? He's the God of lightning. This should be no problem for you. So it begins. Elijah lets the false prophets go first. And the text talks about how all day they made a spectacle. They danced. They sang. They did all sorts of demonstrations and speeches and worship. Anything they could do to try to call down their God from heaven. Elijah kind of got a kick out of this. Like he was really kind of feeling it at this point. So he starts to like egg them on a little bit. At first he's like, hey, hey, maybe your God is sleeping. Crank it up a little bit. I think you can wake him up. So, you know, they do. Elijah comes back. You know, maybe he's on a trip. You know, that was one of the things they would accuse Baal of. is going out of town. That's why it would stop raining. Maybe he's on a trip. Maybe you can bring him back. Nothing. And Elijah goes in even further. He says, you know what? And you have to read the ESV, but I swear it's there. Elijah says, you know what? I think your God is in the bathroom. You know, on the throne. That's the throne your God sits on. You need to maybe get him out of there if you get a little bit louder. So these false prophets, they start slashing themselves with weapons so that they'll bleed because they believe that volume, noise, and blood is going to attract the attention of their false gods. And they do it from morning to midday until evening, and nothing happens. 950 false prophets with a huge crowd watching, not a thing happens. So now it's Elijah's turn. And this was the sum total of what Elijah did. First he had his altar built. Then he was kind of feeling it. Like I said, Elijah said, do me a favor. Just douse my altar in water, which shows a lot of courage. It also wastes a lot of water in a drought. They, they soak it. Elijah says, soak it again. They soak it. He says, soak it a third time. The text says there was so much water that it filled the whole sacrifice, the dirt, the trench around. Everything was soaked. And then he prayed this simple prayer. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Instantly from heaven, fire came down, lit the entire sacrifice, burned the meat, burned the wood, burned the stones, burned the dirt, burned the water. Massive fireball. I'm sure it scared everyone. Like, what just happened to see this amazing display of God's power right there in front of them, especially in the response of such a simple little prayer? Elijah did no singing. He did no dancing. He did no yelling. He did no cutting. He prayed a simple, solemn prayer. And everyone was amazed. It was a massive victory. In fact, it says that everyone who was there watching, they seized the 950 false prophets who were armed, by the way, and killed them all. They were slaughtered. On our day and age, that's not how a political debate ends. Uh, I think we should consider it, but that's how they did it back then. If you lost, that's it. You were just dead. So Elijah's really feeling it now. Massive, massive victory. So then Elijah says to the crowd, and listen, now that God has been proven to be the one true almighty God, it's going to rain. And Elijah sends his servant, go look at the cloud. Servant comes back and he says, uh, uh, there's actually no cloud. Elijah says, no, 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 look again. Servant comes back, uh, there's actually no cloud. Elijah says, no, third time. 
fourth time, fifth time, sixth time. And on the seventh time, Elijah's servant comes back and he says, you know, I see a small cloud coming on the sea. It's about the size of a man's hand. And Elijah says, that's it. It's about to rain like you've never seen. King Ahab, who was there to witness the whole thing, Elijah tells him, you should get in that chariot. You should go now. All these roads are about to flood. and You're not even going to be able to get home. And sure enough, there was a deluge of rain that came and ended the drought. In fact, the text tells us that Elijah was so overcome by this victorious moment that Ahab left on his chariot, Elijah left on foot, and Elijah got home first before the chariot. That is how pumped he was by this victory. The three brutal years that Elijah had experienced had finally ended. He had proven God's power. He had demonstrated God's authority. Everyone there knew that Yahweh was the real God and that Elijah was the real prophet. I mean, this was the victory he had been waiting for for years. So what happens next? Some of you can identify with this. Elijah's had quite a run over this past three years. First, he initiated conflict with the king. He was homeless for three years, living by the river and then living with a widow. He was facing starvation every day of that time with no breaks. A boy that he lived with for three years died and had to be brought back to life. He found out that Ahab and Jezebel were trying to kill all of God's prophets. Then he went through this 950 to 1 prophet duel. His 2020 was rough. It was actually three years, and he was facing calamity and awful things every single day. And now it was over. So Ahab the king, he goes back home, and his wife says, So, what happened out there? What happened with the prophets? What happened with Elijah? And Ahab walks her through it, tells her everything that he has done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. So Jezebel threatens Elijah's life again. This is not new information. She's been trying to kill every single prophet for years. Obadiah told Elijah personally, this is not a good idea for you to go there. Nothing about this is new. So what is Elijah's response? Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. This is a sudden shift in the story. This is not at all what we would expect to happen at this point. Elijah had just experienced the greatest victory that he could ever imagine or see. He was riding the all-time high, and when the queen threatens him again, he simply can't take it, and he goes even further. In fact, the text says that Elijah left town on his own. He brought his servant with him to the edge of kind of civilization, told his servant, you stay in here. Elijah went out into the desert, found a small shrub underneath it. He laid down, and this is what he prayed. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. He goes from being on the t- a mountaintop experience, literally, to suddenly saying, I'm done, I'm so done that I want to die. This is a shocking turn. In fact, for for days I studied this moment, trying to figure out why did Elijah's heart change now? After he had been through so much, what was it that here at this point of crisis he said, you know what, I'm done. I got nothing left. I'm out. What was it that made him sort of snap? 
leave town, flee, and ask God to kill him. I believe that what happened in Elijah's heart was he experienced such a victory on the mountain that he believed that the crisis was over. And when he found out the crisis was going to continue, he simply could not stomach that fact. He had put all of his hope in the crisis being over, and it wasn't. In fact, the, the queen didn't seem to be weakened in the slightest. There was no indication from her that she was backing down and that this would ever stop. And Elijah just, he could not seem to take a crisis after crisis after crisis. It was just too much. And so it's interesting to see what happens next because God starts to minister to Elijah because even though he kind of went out there on his own, God didn't leave him there. In fact, if you read the text, it's very clear what happens next. Elijah lays down, he gets some sleep. Then some birds come, give Elijah some food. He lays down again, and the birds come again. So the first thing Elijah did when he simply had enough, he took a nap and had a snack. For some of you today, that's the sermon that you need to hear. You've been deep in 2020 for such a long time. You may need to consider taking a nap and eating a snack. I know some of us have put on the COVID-19, and we're going to try to burn it off soon. Sometimes we have to consider it's time to rest. It's time to refuel. Because if you push too hard for too long with no breaks, you will eventually break. So Elijah was strengthened by that little bit, and he took a 40-day journey into the wilderness. In fact, he went all the way to Mount Horeb, which scholars believe is the, the same mountain as Mount Sinai, where Israel got the Ten Commandments and where Moses met with God. And once Elijah got there, God asked him a question. He said, what are you doing here, Elijah? This was Elijah's answer. He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Now you and I know, because we get to hear the narrator's voice, this isn't quite accurate. Elijah's kind of exaggerating this in his own mind a little bit. All of the altars haven't been torn down. He just used one on Mount Carmel, and God showed up on that altar. All of the prophets aren't dead. Elijah himself is still alive, and he knows of the other 101 that Obadiah has with his crew. So he just feels suddenly he's completely alone. He sees no hope whatsoever. Because when we've been in a crisis for too long, sometimes we, we start losing the ability to see out. We're kind of locked into a box, and we say, I, I can't, can't see out of this crisis anymore. And so God does something amazing. There on Mount Horeb for Elijah, he puts on a little show. Let me read it to you from 1 Kings 19.11. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Don't miss what happened. God said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said all this, and God showed him earthquake, wind, fire, 
and then his own presence. And Elijah knew God was there because he covered his face. And then God asked him the same question again. Now, many of you know, if your boss asks you the same question twice, if your parents ask you the same question twice, if your spouse asks you the same question twice, it, you'd be well advised to have a new answer on the second time, correct? So much so with God. God has done all this to show Elijah his power and his presence. So then he says to the same question, what does Elijah say in 1 Kings 19, 14? Uh, he says the exact same thing, word for word. This is not a typo. 1 Kings 19, 10, 1 Kings 19, 14. Word for word are the same. Elijah is unmoved. He's unmoved by the display of God's power and the display of God's presence. He sticks with, it's just me, I'm all alone, I've had enough. And what God does with him next I find to be so interesting. Because you would expect at this point for God to address this question, wouldn't you? You would think that God would say, all right, well, let me explain to you what's really going on. But he doesn't. If you read the text, here's what God says. God says, all right, Elijah, um, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go back all 40 days, and on your way, I need you to accomplish three jobs. Number one, I need you to go and anoint a new king over a nation called Aram, because I'm going to use them against Ahab. Then I want you to go to Israel. I want you to anoint a new king named Jehu, who's from a different family. And uh, by the way, I'm going to have you anoint your successor and start to train him. This is a weird answer. Because God actually said, you know what? Elijah, it's time to get back to work. He sent him right back into his prophetic ministry. He didn't answer the questions except for one thing. He did just have a little throw in. He said, oh, and by the way, there are 7,000 observant Israelites still alive. Just a little hint. He says, by the way, you think you're all alone. And you know, seven is the number of completion in the Bible. So when God says 7,000 it's a metaphor. He's saying there are more people still engaged in this fight than you can ever understand or believe. He sends Elijah right back into work. So how is your crisis going? This has not been an easy year. For most of us, this is a year like we've never experienced. I mean, if you think about what's just happened in the last six months, uh, we started in the beginning of the year. There were wildfires in Australia that seemed like it was the, the culmination of climate change, that things are going to be changing more and more rapidly. If you remember, it never snowed here in Long Island this year. Like, the weather's definitely shifting and changing. Then COVID came. We had more than 30 people in our church community lose someone so far to the coronavirus. Many of you lost your jobs. You became unemployed, underemployed, lost businesses you've invested in your entire life. Parents, you were home, homeschooling your children all day, all day, all day, every day. What do we tell ourselves? Well, if we can just get through, if we can just make it to whatever. So businesses, you say, if we can just make it to reopening, that's when things are going to be better. Well, reopening is now. And I think people are not necessarily feeling secure and safe. Parents, we said, if we can just make it to the summer, when the fall, things will go back to normal. We're already hearing that may not be the case. See, if we keep waiting and waiting and waiting, we'll find that the waiting will never end because we have to understand how God works in crisis. The crisis may not be over, 
but God is still at work. When, and he told Elijah, there are still 7,000 observant people that you know nothing about. He's stating about the confidence in the character of who he is. He says, I am still at work in all of this, even if you can't see it. And so we trust in the sovereignty of God. We trust that he is working even when we don't recognize it, even when we don't identify it, even when we don't expect that God is working in the way that we are asking him to. If we wait for the crisis to be over, we will miss how God is at work in our world, in our hearts, and in our minds. Think about it. Parents, I don't know about you, but this time homeschooling, I'd never been through like that. I actually had deepening relationships with my wife and with my sons than I ever had before because we were working together in new ways. You know, I've talked to business owners who told me early on, my business is surely lost. Now they're telling me, actually, we started doing some new things. We brought some creativity into it. It hasn't been easy, but you know, when this is over, there's another product that I can offer. You know, People who lost loved ones, even in their grief, they said, you know, I'm thankful that God was able to, to meet us in these moments and remind us of his love and his care. The way that we survive a crisis is understanding that God is still at work in those moments. The advancement of the crisis does not cause a pause in the provision of God. It's quite the opposite. The advancement of crisis causes God to be more active, more visible, doing more work in our world and in our community. I think we have to guard our hearts a little bit and avoid the false hope of waiting for the crisis to be over. A crisis is not a waiting game. I believe in many ways that's where Elijah kind of messed it up. His time away, his, his three years, then when God brought him back, he said, yes, my waiting is over. The end of the crisis is now. And if we demand that the crisis ends in order to feel restored, we will find that that's a false hope, almost a false idol in a way, to say, I'm just, I'm just waiting for the day that the crisis will be over. How many times have we all said, I just want things to get back to normal? And believe me, I do too. I'm not some sort of sadist that I just want everyone to be in pain all the time. But it's, it's a false hope. There is no guarantee that any crisis will ever end. Think about Elijah. When God sent him back to work, these things that God put into motion, they were all going to be difficult. Remember, he anointed a new king of Aram. That king immediately attacked Ahab. So Elijah actually empowered the enemy of Israel. How do you think that's going to go for him? Then he anoints a new king that's not from the family of Ahab. So Ahab, his father Omri had been the king, then he was the king. He says, no, no, we're going to have a new king from outside your family. That king didn't even serve until two of Ahab's sons failed as kings. He had to wait. And in fact, Elijah's work never ended. That's why he had to bring in a successor. That successor's name was Elisha. That Elisha finished the work of Elijah, so much so that Elijah worked and ministered for God until one day when God said, now you have done enough. The text says that Elijah never even died, that just one day he was swept up into the clouds by a chariot of fire and just immediately went to heaven. Elijah he, he didn't wait for the crisis to be over. He continued to serve and fight and battle. He continued to remain engaged in the mission of God. I think that's the call on our church community today. That 
there's this crisis, this set of crisis that we've been in from COVID to racialization and racism, back to COVID, financial ruin, difficult relationally, difficult job issues, difficult educational scene. It's, it's so easy in all that to say, you know what, I just, I've had enough. There's only so much I can do and no more. And I'm going to pull out of this mission. I'm no longer going to serve. And a verse that God laid in my heart back around Easter, and I've been praying it almost every single day in the morning for weeks and weeks and weeks, is this one from Galatians. It says, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. I don't know about you, but there's been plenty of days that I was ready to give up. I was ready to cash it in, mail it in, you know, sell the house, move into a van down by the river. I just had enough. And over and over, God has brought me back to this verse. Because it's, it's in and through the crisis that we see God work and God uses us in his work. The size of the crisis equals the amount that we need to see God come through. So if you have no crisis in your life, you will never see what God can do. Now, the way that we often pray in crisis is we pray for protection. And I get that. Everyone wants to be protected. Everyone wants to see their loved ones be protected. But what if those prayers of protection are actually us asking God, you know what, we don't want any more crisis. We don't want any more difficulty. Just make things easy again. But when it's easy, we don't grow. We don't stretch. We don't reach. We don't see what God has prepared for us in this moment. I'm going to ask the band to come up. They're going to prepare uh, communion for us. But as we kind of reflect on this, I I remember the, the prayers of Jesus. If you remember, after communion, Jesus went out and prayed. And he went, took a few of his closest disciples with him. And as they prayed, you know, one of the things he prayed was this. He said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. He was saying, if we don't have to go through this crisis, let's not. This sounds difficult. This sounds brutal. This sounds hard. But it's what Jesus said next that changed the course of history forever. Because he did not say, I've had enough. Instead, Jesus said, yet not my will, but yours be done. And it was in that prayer that Jesus committed himself to the cross. He committed himself to going through the crisis, the crisis of sin and death, so that you and I can have our lives fully restored in paradise for all who believe. So let's let's take some time and pray together right now. God, thank you for the mission of Elijah. Thank you for this incredible testimony that we have, both of how you can use someone in unbelievable, uh, striking, even strident ways. It doesn't make it easy to be used by God. In fact, it might make it more difficult. God, I pray for all of my friends here at Beacon. So many of us have been sifted, have been squeezed, have been broken by crisis this year. And God, we've been crying out over and over for crisis to end. But God, I pray today for perseverance. As you give us the perseverance and not give up, we look to you 
for the promise of your scripture that we will reap a harvest. You've promised us that you use everything for the good of those who love you, that you use everything for those who've been called according to your purpose. And God, that is us. So we stand on that promise to say, God, use the crisis that we're in now and, frankly, the crisis that we know is coming next. Use it for your glory in us, in our souls, and in the world that surrounds us. God, we don't recoil from that responsibility. We don't shirk our job, but instead we boldly and humbly ask that you would use us in any way that you see fit, even if it's hard, even if it's tough, even if it's brutal. God, teach us your way so we can walk in them. God, this is our prayer, no more and no less. So we pray in Jesus' name.